0: This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On Air. Sustainable Lens. Resilience on radio.
1: Hear an informed, intelligent and provocative discussion of issues every week as seen through the lens of sustainability. It is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic where all students learn how to make their industries more sustainable. It is hosted by Samuel Mann and Shane Gallagher and joined every week by a leading figure in the sustainability scene. Sustainable Lens. Resilience on radio. Broadcast every week on Otago Access Radio and podcast on SustainableLens.org and on OAR.org.nz.
0: Sing it with me. The minute he walked in the joint, I could see he was a man of distinction, a real big spender. It's Shane, Shane Jones, the benevolent one, the agencies cried. They gasped as he reached into his bottomless pockets, then raised his arms to the sky and the money rained down upon them. Spend, the benevolent one demanded, go forth and spend, and so they did. The agencies reached out to communities and communities created service providers and service providers said, we might teach rangatahi to drive. The agency shouted hooray and behold the money was spent. Months passed by. Where are the newly licensed drivers? asked the lady. Look lady, said the service providers, we said we might teach the rangatahi to drive. We made no promises. The lady was sad. But I have talked to the rangatahi. Sometimes more than one of you has been paid to teach rangatahi to drive, and still those rangatahi have no licence, she said. But the benevolent one was happy that we thought we might try. Why are you unhappy, lady? The lady sat for a moment, then realised this had become a far bigger problem than she could solve. Gather around agencies and providers, and I will tell you a story, said the lady. And they all gathered around her, sipping their large lattes and fancy teas. The lady looked around at the agencies and the providers and her face changed. She started to speak in a quiet voice. There is a boy. The boy gets a part-time job. To get to work, he needs a license, but no one will help him and he has no money to help himself for it is very expensive to learn to drive. Borrows a car and decides to drive it anyway, for he knows he is a very good driver. He pulls onto his street and makes his way to work. a policeman sees him. He knows the boy and does not believe he has a license. He flashes his bright lights and sounds his siren, and the boy stops the car. Oh no, thought the boy, I am in trouble. And so he was. Matua policeman walked up to the car. Boy, he said. When did you get your license? Matua policeman, I don't have my license yet. I have been trying to get help with it, but service providers are very busy and I am not yet known to them, said the boy. Matua policeman shook his head. But boy, you are a brown skin and brown skins are not allowed to break the rules. The punishment for you is very severe. You will not drive, and I will fine you for breaking the rules, he decreed, for you are very bad indeed. The boy was so sad. He was not allowed to drive, would lose his job, and had no money to pay his fine. He knew Matua policeman was right, as he had heard all through his life how bad he was. I am very bad, thought the boy, and the boy's fate was sealed. He had started on a pathway where his choices were limited and the outcomes for his life were predictable if only the providers had used their power. There was silence for a moment as everyone stopped to think. Then the providers said, yes, for that is the problem with brown skins. Let us find better rangatahi to help. The lady put her head in her hands and started to hope.
2: You're listening to Sustainable Lands That was The Boy by Mawera Karatai. What a fantastic story, Mawera.
0: It is kind of a fantastic story, but it's also really sad and it's also really real. And this is a story that's playing out around our communities all the time. Um, The hopefulness is in that we can still change this.
2: I know that in an earlier version of the story, it ended with cry.
0: Yes, it did.
2: And you can see why it could be a story that ends with hopelessness. But I also see it as a story of hope because the lady is telling the story and she can see that things can be better.
0: Yeah. And there are so many people in our communities around Aotearoa who who can make change happen who are working so hard, being real about the problems that we face and doing whatever they can to change it. And we're seeing that change here in the Eastern Bay of Plenty, finally, um, with uh, organisations like VTNZ and AA who were quite inflexible in the past, now starting to look at how they can remove barriers, particularly in our isolated rural communities where people like the boy live and where that is the reality of their lives.
2: So there's two things in that. One of them is that a thing as, let's go for trivial, inconsequential as a driver's license and the difficulty of getting a driver's license in rural areas turns out not to be trivial and not to be inconsequential.
0: No, it's absolutely life transformation and life devastation um, in cases like this. So, for example, at the moment, if you had gone through all of the proper processes to get your restricted licence, what are we now? We're at April, just at the start of April. We're looking at August before you can get an appointment to sit your restricted here in Fakatani. That's crazy. So, all those kids who have done all, they've done their time on their learner license, they've done their practices, they're ready to sit, and they have literally got to wait for months before they can take a license test.
2: And as in the story, you you didn't need to describe what the consequences are for the boy, but you can quite easily see that that is a, I don't know if it's the first step or the first domino, but it's a, it's you can see that it's on a journey of such myriad such events where he is being told by the state that he's very bad. And so he might yeah. as well be very bad.
0: Well, exactly. And if you look at all of the statistics, um, the statistics say if you're Māori, you're more likely to engage with the justice system at a young age and um, license problems are generally the first engagement with the justice system. Uh, if you're Māori, you're also more likely to be given a harsher penalty than if you're not Māori. And, um, and you know, we, there's plenty of evidence around to support that as the reality of life. Uh, and so we actually need to make some fundamental changes and if to solve this, which should be such a simple problem to solve, we just need to actually start better resourcing community organisations with money to pay for licences we need to get more testing opportunities available uh, and we just need to be real about the problem
2: The other thing I think it really demonstrates is that although you said money there, it's money in the right places and spent the right way because those agencies were trying to do the right thing
0: they absolutely
2: yeah. And, and so, is this an example of uh, systemic racism through an ineptness?
0: Uh I think it's a total disconnection from the reality of life. So, if you're living in Wellington and working in a high rise building, you have no idea probably even where Murupara is, but certainly no idea of the needs of our rangatahi living in that isolated rural community. And and to their credit, like, you know, recently talking to the AA about um, changing the delivery model for um, the way that... Uh, defensive driving programs are delivered, there is no way that we could actually deliver the defensive driving program the way that it's supposed to be delivered in a place like Murupada, and yet we have got 70 kids at the moment who need to take that defensive driving course.
2: So we've been talking lots about hope, and we've been talking lots about decolonisation, and we've been working on imagination and positive regard. What's also the role for a systemic change in terms of a a decolonising better world?
0: Oh, that's so tricky because you have to think about, first of all, decolonising has only been a problem for 200 years since colonisation. 200 and something years is not enough time for the sort of systemic change required to undo the damage that's been done over that time, um, we're, we're talking about a loss of language a loss of la- uh, a loss of culture a loss of identity and a forced assimilation into something that's so completely foreign and there's this you know there, there is this intergenerational trauma that is tied up around decolonization um, we can't ever go back and we can't make the problems of the past disappear. But what we need to do is stop creating spaces where people are punished for their ethnicity. And that's the problem we have at the moment. If we really want to fix them, if we want to be seriously fixing that space, what we need to do is be honest about how we view our rangatahi who are Māori. And and at the moment, there's still not enough honesty in that space. And the biggest thing is <laughs> we actually have to, we've got to be able to teach hope, Sam. We have to be able to teach hope. And hope comes from being able to imagine a future for yourself. If you cannot imagine a future for yourself, then what hope can you possibly have?
2: Dirty Projectors, Overlords. I want to dig more into system change, recognizing, of course, that Muwera says that you can't undo 200 years of colonization with one quick fix, and we need to look in another show at deeper questions of what colonization means, but I really want to get my head around how we change systems. So let's start by taking a discussion we had with Bonnie Robinson.
3: Wasn't really that great for them, but anyway, um, <laughs> you know. So I really liked that eclectic mix. Did no that designs.
2: come through in that history at that school, or was it about remembering dates?
3: Uh, well, I had fell into a job with um, Age Concern, which is an organisation that works with able to make some kind of difference. Difference both for individuals through the services we provide, but also systemically through, you know, getting involved in, um, in lobbying and, and policy work and, and at a national level.
2: Is there a sweet spot of the the level in which we can be active that has the greatest impact?
3: You mean individually or yeah. a society? Hmm. I think that's probably a highly individual thing, really, because it depends on your. Depends on your skill set and all that sort of stuff. Um, I mean, I think one of the things is that you can make a difference to individuals' lives, and we should, because we shouldn't leave people in distress who we could help on an individual level. But if that's all you do, if you don't actually attempt to j- change things at a systemic level, then you'll just be doing that forever. And I remember the debates... Um, So I went and became the Executive Officer for the New Zealand Council of Christian Social Services, which is effectively the sort of lobbying organisation for the force for social change and social justice. So that's kind of the avenue I went down. Um, And they're the mother of all budgets, and we had the benefit cuts, and we had use of food banks skyrocketing. Um, And there was big debate about whether we should keep the food banks going. Or close them down because some of the advocates for unemployed people said, well, because you feed feed us, and you, then the government doesn't have to do anything. And so we had this dilemma. Well, hungry children, why should they go hungry? Because we're trying to make a political point. But yes, because we feed people, the government doesn't have to act. Because they don't have starving people on the on their doorstep, and I've always that's one that I always come back to when I'm trying to make difficult decisions between the one and the many. You know, um, you have to be able to consider the one and the many, and I think the sweet spot's probably knowing that that's what you have to do all the time, and those are always going to be difficult decisions. You know, there is no simple answer to that. Um, so, um, yeah.
2: It's interesting that you said you, you can make a difference to individuals' lives, and you should. And but if you can, you can. You should um, work systemically. And you skipped over the other option, which is not doing anything. Or yeah, well, breaks. I don't
3: see that as morally appropriate to not do anything if you're in a position to do something. You know, some people aren't because of their circumstance. I wanted to kind of work on a more systemic level rather than an individual level. And as a human being, irrespective of whether you're religious or not, you have a moral responsibility... To do something, you know. Um, if if you can make a contribution now, for some people that might only be that they donate regularly to organisations because that's actually what they can do. Um, but that is at least doing something, you know. So, and and that's my personal philosophy. I guess that we're here to um, make the world a better place, um, and hopefully leave it a bit better than we found it, um, in ways small or large. Um, but I think sometimes where we, you know, we to make real progress, you have to work systemically on a lot of issues.
2: Um. Bonnie Robinson, they're talking about systemic failure and how we find the sweet spot between the one and the many. I think that's really important. We need to make things better, for more wearer's boy, but also change the system. Melina Misema in Karlskrona in Sweden works on social systems approaches. She focuses on social sustainability, in particular, the system conditions of the natural step framework. (laughs) And the fourth one
4: is what? Is currently... Is currently... uh, no systematic barriers to uh, the capacity to meet one's needs.
2: And what's wrong with that? <laughs>
4: um, well, I wouldn't say what's wrong with it. Um,
2: we well, have spent three... how many years?
4: Four, you've five... four spent four, uh,
2: four, five years writing a better one, so... Yes,
4: but wrong sounds so... it was wrong. Um... Well, basically, what we started out with was that... So the framework um, for strategic sustainable development that we use um, talks all about sort of systems approaches and that we need to approach sustainability uh, from a systems lens um, to really make sure that we don't create situations where we address one thing but create negative consequences somewhere else. And so that's very... um, clearly done on the ecological side and what we realized on the social side is that we're not actually following that approach because you we're going directly to the individual and human needs uh so the question became well what would it actually look like if we took a systems perspective on the social and what could we do with that
2: where did that idea come from
4: um I would say two things. The experience over the years from people who've worked with the framework that um, the social side isn't quite as developed and is a bit more challenging. Um, And then that realization that, well, actually, if you look at it purely intellectually, we're not being true to what we set out to do. And by we, I mean people who work or develop the framework.
2: So you haven't come up with a new number four. You've come up with... Four through eight. Eight.
4: You did your homework. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
2: Is that representing? That's end up being more than the physical side, but that's not saying suggesting it's, it's more important. It's just no. It's just taking extra words to get there.
4: Yeah. I mean, obviously, there's no point in sustaining a social system if we don't sustain the environmental system or the ecological okay. system.
2: Okay. Let's go through them, what, what they are then.
4: <laughs> okay.
2: Now you must, you've, you, I'm hoping that you'll remember these ones. Yes, I will. Yeah, good.
4: Uh So the first one is uh, people are not subject to systematic barriers to integrity. Uh, do you want me to explain?
2: Let's go through them all and we can step okay. through them more slowly.
4: And then no systematic barriers to influence, uh, competence, Impartiality and meaning.
2: So people are not subject to, and then it's all of those. Okay. Yeah. Systematic barriers. Hang on. Let's just let's let's look at the root of the sentence first. Mm-hmm. So it's people. That's so. Is by definition, it's all people.
4: Yes, and it's meant to be smaller groups and bigger groups. So the word "people" is meant to uh, include sort of subsystems.
2: And so these things should work simultaneously at different scales. Yes. And timeframes? I guess so, yeah. How's time in this whole model?
4: How does time fit in this whole model? Um, Well, the whole idea is that the principles would create conditions that would allow uh, people to meet their needs now and in the future.
2: Hmm. Come back to that. People are not subject to systematic barriers
4: mm-hmm. to, to integrity, to integrity, influence, competence, impartiality, and meaning.
2: So systematic barriers. What does that mean?
4: Um, it, me- it means to say that uh, similarly, how we we talk about on the ecological side, like a one. Off violation isn't necessarily the challenge. It's the challenge is if we systematically in the ecological side increase certain substances. Um, on the social side, we talk about systematic barriers in the sense of that they're ingrained in how we design the system. Right? So um say a barrier to impartial systematic barrier to impartiality might be um Forms of uh, laws that are discriminating, or uh, in, a, in an organizational context, policies. Uh, I mean, there could also be cultural aspects, but are things that are not just one-off, like "I um, made you feel bad once," but are more emble- like emblematic of the system.
2: Right. So let's go through them. And you can tell me what they what they mean. So integrity.
4: Integrity is, um, and we're currently playing with those words, is meant to be sort of, um, the physical harm. So there's no, um, there's no barrier to you being physically well. So a barrier, like if there's, um, uh, forced labor or something like that, that would be a barrier to integrity. Or if you're being abused, um if you're a sweatshop worker or, um,
2: does operating health systems come under that or is that under one of the others?
4: Um, I mean, I would say an operating health system can, can help to, uh, address that principle or not. So if you have a, if you have a system, um, uh, say, uh, safety issues at work, right? So um, the system could either be set up um, to try to address safety issues or maybe you don't really have one.
2: I was thinking in the extreme case, Cambodia, extreme poverty, essentially doesn't have a functioning health system. Mm, okay. Is that, how, is, is that where you would put that as an issue? Well, presumably things can come under more than one of these.
4: Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I could you could put it there. I mean, I think especially if there's no other way for individuals to actually um, remain healthy. So if you get exposed to a lot of diseases, but there's no uh, way of helping you address that. And I mean, I think conceptually there could be other ways of doing that than a public health system. But if there's no public health system and no other system to do so, influence is about uh, the individual. It's being able to influence the the system. So, um, being able to influence the development of the system. So, voting rights um, uh, on a larger scale, or maybe how. Um, how knowledge is transferred in an organization Um, so can the factory line worker influence in any way um, the organization and what they learn Um, is their voice heard stuff like that competence is about the ability to learn And be good at something um, and develop. So barriers to that. Such as? Um, Well, a lot of educational system things. Um, In companies, you can ask, are there development opportunities for people? How are people learning together to make the organization more competent? Uh, How is learning handled in the organization?
2: Impartiality
4: is about uh, basically people being treated equally um, especially by the institutions in in the system um, So violations of that would be discrimination, um, unequal pay for men and women um,
2: and lastly
4: meaning. Um, So that comes from the idea that um, humans need meaning in their life and are a meaning-making species and that social systems are designed to have a purpose. Um, And so a violation of that might be um, if you don't have a clear purpose and role and responsibilities in your work, um, if if there's barriers to you expressing maybe a sense of meaning through your cultural practices, um, stuff like that.
2: How did you arrive at these? Because there are there are several things you could have used. So, mm-hmm. so, did you try Maslow, for example?
4: So, what we did is we ended, as I said earlier, we were going to try and take a, a social systems approach. So, we looked at studies around complex adaptive social systems. Um and resilience in those systems. Uh, And then one of the key aspects that stuck out from that in human social systems was um, the topic of trust as a sort of, um, they call it a glue in the system that kind of makes, sticks the system together and creates a social fabric. Um, So we use that to think about, okay, well, how would those uh, characteristic or those properties be undermined? And so we went into studies around trust,
3: um,
4: resilience, and that's how we uh, came. So we consciously stepped away from just the individual level and needs and kind of thought about it from a resilient social system perspective.
1: Mornings come, you watch the red sunrise, the LED still in your eyes, you oughta to spare your face the razor, because no one's gonna spare the time for you. No one's gonna watch you as you go from a house you didn't build and can't control. Oh, you ought to spare your face the razor, because no one's gonna spare the time for you. You are to spare the world you labor. It's been 20 years and no one's told the truth So
5: listen
2: vampire weekend obvious bicycle and for systemic barriers to georgie ferrari talking about implementing system change in social services so
6: people say to me we're we're currently in the building that houses cab and somebody said to me the other day in wellington well cab come to us annually for five thousand dollars this is in a region of wellington and i said CAB. Why doesn't central government fund CAB, for goodness sake? It's a national service giving advice to the citizens of New Zealand on all range of topics. Why is it not centrally funded? Why do they have to go individually, branch by branch, across New Zealand, cap in hand for $5,000 for their operation costs? I just can't believe that we have in Australia, there's a much more centralised funding system and government takes a lot more responsibility for funding a lot more. And, I mean, I think that's obviously one of the other things that I've noticed coming back to New Zealand is how, um, how abundant Australia is and cashed up, basically. You know, thanks, we're just digging all those resources out of the ground and we're spending all the profits that come from them. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of those profits go into things that spent they get spent on things I don't agree with, but, you know, social services... Uh, very well-funded in in Australia compared to here. And um, and that's a real shock to me. I, I, I think there should be more responsibility uh, in, in the government's court for funding some of that sort of social service infrastructure that is just it's for, taken for granted in Australia that it's government-funded. Is it
2: not getting done here, or is it getting done on a shoestring? <clears throat>
6: it's getting done on a shoestring, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I've seen it already in Wellington... Um, we fund, we'll fund a um, a violence sort of prevention, like a, a rape crisis type service. It's not rape crisis, but we'll fund one of those services five or ten thousand dollars towards their coordinator's salary. And I look at that and I go, so that means that organization is going to three or four or five other funders to get the full amount of that salary. Because we if we put ten thousand towards it, then they'll go to another funder to put another ten thousand. And that to me is completely inefficient. So I want to tip that on its head. I I want to go to that organisation and go, who else do you go to? And then get all those funders together and go, well, why don't we fund them a hundred percent this year, you fund them a hundred percent next year. Let's do this smarter. Or let's just pull Pull all our money into a violence prevention fund and invite all the services that work in violence prevention to come to this one fund. Let's do it in a different way and let's stop – you know, I mean most of those organisations will spend way more than 30% of their time fundraising and that's just a waste.
2: You'd much rather <coughs> that they were doing the actual work.
6: Yeah, and not, and then fundraising and then reporting on the fundraising. So, you know, <laughs> then you add the 20% time into uh, accountability and reporting and there's not much time left to do the real work.
2: What does the Youth Affairs <clears throat> Council of Victoria do?
6: A lot of advocacy for young people's issues across the state. So if you can think of an issue, um, I can tell you how young people are engaged or involved in it or how it affects them. So it's really, it can be anything. It can be, in my time there, we, we advocated on everything from abortion law reform through to driver licensing re- regulations through to... Um, uh, the urban drift of the youth population from rural centres um, you name it we would have ha- probably written a paper on it at some point, it was some policy paper so in Victoria or in Australia generally there's a much, there seems to be a quite, um, I think there's a much more sort of um, robust process, and I have, it may happen here but it's, I haven't witnessed it as much where the government will say we're doing an inquiry into X, we want submissions uh, on this topic they'll write to you or if they don't write to you, you can just put a submission in anyway, um, and then you will be invited um, to a parliamentary inquiry to give evidence. Not not always, but you know, often most of the time, if you're seen as an expert on that and a specialist expert on a topic, you'll be invited into a parliamentary inquiry and sometimes invited back to to give to give evidence on a topic. So we did a lot of that work, and more and more over the time that I was there we tried to um, engage the voice of young people directly in that work. So, for example, the last, one of the last parliamentary inquiries I went to was on um, young people in the youth justice system in the actual locked-up facilities and um, <coughs> how those systems could be improved. Excuse me. We took a young person, we took a young man to that parliamentary inquiry. He'd spent 11 months locked up in a youth justice facility in um, regional Victoria, and he was the first young person that all of those parliamentarians had ever spoken to who'd been in a youth justice facility. So to take him there and sit with him and him him tell his story and it wasn't about him saying, you know, I did this bad crime and this blah blah blah. He he wasn't talking about his, you know, his misdemeanours. He was talking about his experience in that centre and how it could have been improved and what the infrastructure was that needed to change and and those sorts of issues. That that's really powerful work, both for the um for the politicians who don't get that kind of access, um, and also for the young man to to be able to sit there and and talk directly to to the power brokers, so that was the kind of work that I really uh, enjoyed doing at um, the Youth Affairs Council. I mean, we did a range of other stuff. We had a um, we had an advocacy service for young people with disability that employed eight people with disabilities. I had three guide dogs in my office. You'd think that would be chaotic, but it was actually beautiful. They all very well behaved guide dogs, even off harness. Um, yeah, and I had two wheelchair users and a, um, a deaf woman all working in that unit. So everybody, pretty much everybody in that unit had had a disability, which is great because obviously people with disabilities have way fewer opportunities for full time or even part time employment. Um, and they did a whole they did both systemic and individual advocacy for young people with disabilities. Um, we ran a well, we supported the um, establishment of and running of a Ab- Aboriginal Youth uh, Advisory Council called the Koori Youth Council, which was just for uh, developing the skills and advocacy uh, work of young people um, in the Indigenous community in, in Victoria. And we also ran a student voice network called the Victorian Student Representative Council, so uh, all the kids that were engaged in their student councils throughout victoria had a had a peak body that helped develop their skills and advocacy and and student participation in in a high school setting yeah so we did a range of stuff in that organization which was fantastic
2: and from system change in melbourne australia to growing up an activist in new zealand marima davidson
7: the tino rangatiratanga movement is probably where I should start off my parents were a teenage they were the teenage urban maori young angry maori who were starting to realize the impacts of being separated from their language and their land and their history and i was born into that um, and uh, i was born into their their grief and their activism and their resilience um, and we lived all around Wellington, Auckland, Dunedin, a bit of Christchurch, um, and then back to my my homelands in the north, in Taitokedo, in the rural communities. So I had a really privileged – I say privileged in terms of having incredible parents who taught us from the day one about unconditional love – um, showed us many diverse experiences, um, introduced us to amazing, talented, super people, and taught us about justice um, and connected us to who we are and our pride in our whakapapa. Um, and so I consider that an incredibly privileged upbringing, um, not at all materially, but but um having such an such a strong grounding from them about what is important and who is important.
2: So what what was the goals of that movement? What was what was what was their
7: aims? Um so in the 70s uh, many people might recall that there was a sort of a renaissance of young Maori who started to realize, hey, um our language being taken from us is not really a good thing. And our land being taken from us is an even worse thing. And the, and the power structures that, that um, put people in a heap at a bottom of the pile is also not a good thing. And the whole movement was built on justice. Particularly um, asking the country to honour Te Tiriti o Waitangi and the sovereign authority, or the Tino Rangatiratanga, that was always supposed to be affirmed in that in that treaty. Um, And so the the specific one of the specific uh, landmarks that they were campaigning for was for Te Reo to be an official language. And my parents um, met on the steps of Parliament campaigning for our language and our land um, and it was to return what was stolen including the language and it was to um, I guess to sort of reconnect Maori to a, a resistance movement and um, inspiring Maori to to come together collectively and fight for their rights.
2: So a lot of our listeners aren't actually here in New Zealand is it? won't know much about the treaty. Can you talk a little bit about what the treaty says and when, when that was signed and, and what, oh what, what that agreement was? Just a little bit about it. Okay, so
7: 1840, um, yes, Te Tiriti Waitangi, the treaty was signed, but before that you have He which is the Declaration of Independence, which was signed by chiefs of um, hapū around the country, around Aotearoa, and that declaration actually affirmed, before the treaty, it affirmed the tenorangatiratanga of hapū, actually, um, and the chiefs and the rangatira all around the country. And that was sort of a preamble to Tiriti, which was officially signed 1840, Waitangi, up in the north, where I'm from. Um, and Tiriti, and this is partly why I belong to the Green Party, is the foundation of of the bicultural and then the multicultural um, nation of uh, the foundation of Aotearoa and an agreement by which we agree to live with one another, an agreement to the relationship that we have to one another and to the land that upholds Māori as tangata whenua, a unique status um, as tangata whenua of Aotearoa that did not cede sovereignty, that affirmed sovereignty for Um, mana whenua for hapū and iwi around the country and that agreed to work together to protect all citizens of this country and afford all citizens equal rights um, under the treaty. So it is our founding document um, and we are a long way from truly honouring it but the work continues. So be fair
2: to say the treaty was ignored in subsequent years Mm. uh, and violated so the 1970s came along uh, there's this big huge movement uh, trying to re-establish Maori's rights uh, established in the treaty what was kind of what was the broad outcomes of that? I mean, I mean, you you must be seeing oh, that as, as a child, because uh, yeah. I mean, Tierrao is now is, yeah. uh, is a yeah. is an official language. Yes,
7: I guess that's a really good one to start with. Um, so my father, there is archived footage of my father on the steps of Parliament. I think he might have been seventeen years old. Presenting that petition in 1971, before I was born, to Parliament, which called for Reo to be made an official language, and he's on the steps of Parliament, speaking a language that he'd never spoken before, his own language. Um, and the result of that petition had many sort of uh, runoffs, including yes, we we eventually, but I don't I don't think it was until the 80s we eventually did affirm Reo as an official language. Um, and and also importantly we began the um i guess the 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 systemic revitalization of Te Reo, including um the founding kohanga which started off in the back garages at the homes of many nannies who decided let's just let's just get all the tamariki and mokopuna and and let's just set up in the garage like a little learning language nest and look after them only in our language. And so um, that was the start of the Kohanga Reo movement, um, which was another flow on from the Te Reo official language movement. Um, And of course, now we have kura kaupapa, um, wānanga reo, learning institutions all around the place. And um, I'm very proud of the Green Party part and also pushing to have te reo in all schools available for all students. So um, that was one of the, I guess, outcomes from the 70s. Gosh, but there are many, many more. The um, the movement continues today. There was some landmark uh, Cases in the courts, um, including around the sale of state-owned enterprises, I think that's still also in the 80s and 90s, where um, the treaty was originally in the courts called a nullity when considering um, selling off, you know, big government assets. Um, But then a repeal to that, um, and lawyers would kindly correct me, <laughs> um, but my, my my understanding is that um, an appeal to that absolutely affirmed that Māori and the Treaty must have prominence um, in the consideration of selling of state assets. So um, there have been so many sort of well-known and lesser-known um, outcomes from the Tino-Rangatira movement, and it, and it never stopped. It still continues. And you mentioned- On today's
2: Sustainable Lens, we started out hearing from Mawera Karatai, reading a story which comprises the first page of her doctoral thesis. And from there, we looked at notions of systems change. We've heard from Bonnie Robinson, Melina Misema, Georgie Ferrari and Marima Davidson. You can hear from all of those people in full on SustainableLens.org. Uh, that was Sustainable Lens. I'm Samuel Mann. We hope you enjoyed the show.
8: The minute you walked in the joint, I could see you were a man of distinction, a real big spender. Good looking, so refined Say, wouldn't you like to know what's going on in my mind? So let me get right to the point I don't pop my cork for every guy I see Hey, big spender Spend a little time Wouldn't you like to have fun? Fun, fun. How's about a view? Laughs, laughs, I can show you a good time. Let me show you a good time. The minute you walked in the joint, I could see you were a man of distinction, a real big spender, a good looking so refined, say would you like to know what's going on in my mind, so let me get right to the point, I don't pop my cork for every guy I see.
6: Otago Polytechnic. We've made a commitment to sustainability in all that we do. High-quality, hands-on education is our trademark, and it's delivered with a focus on sustainable practice. We even have a school dedicated to it, our Centre for Sustainable Practice. For more information, check out our website, otagopolytechnic.ac.nz. A bright future is a sustainable future. Otago Polytechnic. Proud sponsor of Sustainable Lens.